Welcome to episode 71 of the Contra Fabulous podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And hey, we are doing a podcast and we're both in New York. Yay, happy to be back in New York. Uh, done with the move. Well, I mean, there's still some boxes to arrive and unpack, but as far as the bulk of it, uh, we are officially New Yorkers. Yeah, um, I'm glad that you're back so that you're here to carry up the few remaining boxes since I did the rest of it. Yes. <laughs> A word of advice, I guess we don't give advice very often on this podcast, but if you have to move across country within the United States, I should specify, I should clarify, um, and you have books, you should ship the media mail because it's incredibly cheap. Yeah, I was impressed. We, uh, we, packed up seven boxes you get up to what was it 70 pounds of uh, 50 pounds in a box 50, 50 pounds in a box and uh and then uh but was yeah it was cheap. it was pretty cheap and uh, i actually thought when it when you send things media mail that perhaps it takes you know i don't know a month to arrive but it was still here it was still here in um in the same time that it takes to mail a letter so good job uh united states postal service yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's you could support our support our podcast. Want to underwrite <laughs> yes. our podcast? I'm kidding. So what's uh what's shaking this week? What do you want to talk about? Well, um, so I have to I do have to confess that um, I since it's the beginning of November, um, November first, I s- start working on my annual um, year in review. In the past, I've called it top ed tech trends, partially sort of a tongue in cheek sort of dig at the kinds of listicles that tend to come out at the end of the year or actually throughout the year really that identify you know the most what people say are the most popular products or services um, in ed tech I tend to look at I tend to scrutinize things in a different kind of way um, so I'm working on that and it's uh, it's incredibly depressing I mean it's always very difficult to revisit the last 12, you know, I guess 11 months, but the last 12 months, um, and sort of see, see the shape of things and see the stories that are, uh, when you do this sort of review, you can really see how carefully certain narratives are getting crafted and spread, um, uh, about the future of education, the future of technology. Um, so it's, it's always a, a particularly sort of disheartening thing, but this year, uh, this year, um, under Trump, it's sort of startling to me how uh, how many things the Trump administration has has touched that have um, sort of even have sort of made the, the the possibilities of of progressive change through any kind of education technology even even harder. So it's a um, it's 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 pretty it's pretty depressing. Um, the work that I'm doing right now, um, and I, uh, you know, I hate being the "I told you so" person. But actually, on the first of November, the day I started this project, um, a story broke that is very much sort of an "I told you so" story. And I want to start off with that because I, I think it provides an interesting lens to think about the way in which we hear these stories about technology, and that's alt school which is a 
high-profile um, Silicon Valley startup founded by a for- former Google executive, um, a private school that um, he had no experience in education. Um, he read a handful of books and decided, decided to start a company. But it really adopted this sort of mantra of personalization. And I think he brought with him the way in which the Silicon Valley tech companies envision personalization. And that is through massive amounts of data collection, um, one will surface insights um, into your users. And so alt school, um, the tuition run ran from about $28,000 a year to about 40,000, depending on the location, um, really had a, a pervasive sort of um, practice of surveillance. The, the classrooms were video recorded, the classrooms were the audio recorded, uh, all of the kids' interactions were taped that way, but then of course they were using uh, technology for a lot of their day, and so what they were doing on the, t- on the computers or on the tablets was also tracked, and not just sort of what tasks they did, but sort of all the clicks and all the gestures that they made on these devices. So it was really this belief that if you track it, if you capture enough data, and then sort of do sort of some magical analytics, you'll be able to personalize personalize education. Anyway, Silicon Valley investors loved it. Um, the company had raised uh, a, some hundred and eighty thousand or hundred and eighty million dollars in venture capital, and Bloomberg broke the story this week, and it's a story that's been uh, we've seen hints of it for a while now, but that um, the story actually broke that at the end of the school year, uh, Alt School will be shutting down one of its schools in Palo Alto. And then the next day, Business Insider broke the story that they'll also be shutting down a school here in Manhattan. And the letter, the letter, the email that the CEO, the founder wrote to parents was, you know, quite, quite frank, telling them that, um, let me see if I can find, find his exact wording. Um, uh, it's tough news, he says. Um, it's going to have a big impact on your family, but um, Alt School needs to do this. Um, it needs to close the school to focus on its strategy, its path to growth and finances. And so to me, um, it was, you know, I, I think pretty indicative that the, one of the successes of Alt School is, I think, is that they they actually had um, they had they wanted to adopt some sort of Montessori style education. They had some great Montessori teachers in the classroom, um, but increasingly they were spending a lot of money on, or actually throughout the whole time they were spending a ton of money on the engineering part of it. And I don't think that they could actually afford to sustain the high touch. high teacher ratio and the actual costs of running a brick and mortar school. Not when you've raised $180 million in venture capital, the idea is to be able to scale, right? The idea is to be able to sort of get millions and millions of people using your software. So Alt School is going to pivot and become a learning management system because that's what everything in ed tech becomes when the startup founders, um, decide that they can't actually revolutionize education. Um, but this idea that, you know, for a year or so now, for a couple of years now, these families have paid alt school tens of thousands of dollars 
for their kids to be beta testers in the software that this company is developing. And now it's sort of like, eh, damn it, darn, it's not working out, we're closing our doors, sucks. Um, not surprising, I think, for, um, but what was, I'm sorry, this is a really long-winded explanation here. I'm already prepping for my year in review things, you can tell. But Ed Surge tweeted, like they rewrote the Bloomberg News as they are wont to do, sort of regurgitating other people's reporting. They rewrote the story. Um, and when they tweeted it, they said, alt school had fooled all y'all Silicon Valley or had fooled you Silicon Valley fools or something to that end. And I was like, are you serious, Ed Surge? Like, you're one of the, your publication is a trade publication in the service of promoting companies like Ed Surge. You share investors with Ed Surge. The fools that invested in alt school are the fools that invested in you. Like, Ed Surge is sort of not a voice of, of investigative reporting. It's not a site of any kind of critical thought around education technology. By and large, they're given press releases by the tech ind- ed tech industry, and they and that's what they cover. And um, that's and I wrote about this in my newsletter this week, which is really how I think most tech journalism, and not just ed tech journalism, and this ed surge isn't the only um, publication that does this, but that's how tech. That's how most tech journalism works, right? A company raises money, they issue a press release, there's a story in TechCrunch. A company releases an app, they release a press release, there's a story in Mashable. A company has an upgrade to their device, they release a press release, there's a story in the next web. Um, It's very much about writing the kinds of stories that the that the companies want to hear. And we find ourselves in a particularly dangerous place right now, and not just dangerous because of the likes of alt school and talk about personalization, but but because the the tech technology journalists have utterly failed to do any kind or not utterly failed, but almost entirely have failed to do the kinds of investigative critical reporting on the tech sector that is necessary for as powerful politically, financially, socially, culturally as these companies are. And we see that with the stuff on Capitol Hill this week with Facebook and Twitter. Well, they... They these tech journalists do exactly what they were designed to do. I mean, they're on the same pre-planned trajectory that these startup, you know, startups, whether it's it's alt school or, or any other startup, is it shows you know the where the product you know or where you know where the product as they're trying to like groom this piece of technology, not because it's doing any good or or make any money it's just got to get traction enough to be able to sell to further investors and then make that exit and if it doesn't they have to package that up and and make it uh make it useful to as as an exit because because the people who did put their money into it have to be able to save face and, and come out the other end at least um looking all right 
And so the you know an LMS getting packaged up as an LMS seems to be the 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 natural progression of this when it when it doesn't quite get the traction it needs. But the tech investors or the tech investors, the tech reporters, they're um, doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing because you know it's not just that they're worried about losing access to the next story. The person who's actually writing the stories, these press releases that come out in a regular rhythm that that become the stories that they get attached their name to. They're also, the exit strategy for them is either to go be a marketing director because, you know, that's the next step in their career to be a director or an executive marketing executor at one of these startups, or they go work at one of these VC firms. So there's a natural progression, a natural rhythm to all of this. And most people don't see it because they're, you know, down in the forest and they're reading, you know, just Mashable or they're reading just TechCrunch. They're not like doing what we're doing as far as paying attention to the whole landscape of things and being able to see how this how this is playing out across many industries or across many publications. And this is just one, you know, I mean, it's sad that this is happening in education, but imagine when this happens, you know, to the, the latest thing they're selling for grandma and grandpa in, in the nursing home and they go, oops, sorry, this is really disappointing, but it's grandma and grandpa, but we got to go. Uh, we 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 got to become profitable. Sorry, or when they're you know delivering you know water or some you know financial or or healthcare to some some remote you know part of Virginia, and they're like, oops, sorry, this is no longer profitable. We gotta we gotta switch. Or hey, we're doing mental health or opioid whatever. This is just you know Silicon Valley business model. So this is is. Well, so partially it's Silicon Valley, but I think partially it's also the way in which we think about, I mean, it's one of the myriad of problems that we have with our current information ecosystem, right? So journalism is facing um, crises, a number of crises, crises of the business model, crises of um, ownership. You know, we saw this week um, the... Uh, Gothamist and DNA Info um, get shut down because they um, the, their billionaire owner had decided that he didn't really want to have unionized employees. He'd recently voted to unionize, and he, you know, he shut them down rather than even negotiate negotiate with his with his workers. So journalism, you know, and I think about you know what Peter Thiel did um, to fund the lawsuits that that closed Gawker. Um, journalism. You know, journalism is is in crisis, but journalism is essential. Independent journalism is essential, and you know, companies like EdSurge, they, I mean, they they say independent, they're independent, but they're not. I mean, they're industry funded, um, they're they're industry funded um, publications, and I think that to be able to get news about the industry that really matters um, so profoundly, the tech industry, to get information that's not um, a press release is incredibly re- important, and the PR industry for the tech sector is so powerful. A couple of years ago, a survey came out, and they said that for every one working journalist in the U.S., there are five people working in PR. Right. So if you think about a fear, you know, and, and I I know that you get some of this with the work that you do um, as API evangelist, like. 
my email inbox is flooded daily with people pitching me story ideas. I don't have to do, I wouldn't have to do anything ever to come up with my own story ideas. If I were just to sort of go through my inbox and be like, yeah, that sounds great. I'll write about that. PR people make it really easy for you. They give you all the pieces that you need, right? You, they, they hook you up with the CEO of a company to talk about something, a, a news item happens and they'll say to you, Hey, would you like to talk to, you know, my, this company I represent, would you like to talk to their, you know, their founder? Would you like to talk to their investor? Would you like to talk to this analyst about how it relates to X, Y, or Z news item? And I think that people who are looking for timely and relevant stories, um, that it, it makes it, um, for, for, for many people. And I, and I, and I'm not, um, I should say that like, it's, <laughs> how do I want to put this? This is one of the things where when we've heard, we, when we heard this promise that a lot of internet folks gave that the internet was going to sort of disrupt journalism and that that was going to be a good thing. Um, that's not the whole story, right? Um, journalism has, uh, is, incredibly important in the sort of the way in which we sort of um, dismiss and denigrate the media, the mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream media, I think has, has pretty severe repercussions. If, um, if we want to sort of see the destruction of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times or um, what have you, and, and replace that with people who don't have, don't have the same, um, penchant for fact-checking, for example, who don't follow the same kind of editorial or ethical guidelines that journalists ideally should. Um, and I think that what we've seen with it with technology is that the good stories, the interesting stories about technology tend to not come from people who are tech reporters. And I, um, and th- this, that's not, I don't necessarily actually mean tech reporters at the New York Times. They've done some good work, although some of them, um, some of them more than others, right? Mike Isaac, for example, has broken a couple of really important stories, like he broke the gray balling story earlier this year about Uber. Um, but what you find a lot of times is these, these reporters have to really maintain a good relationship with these very powerful companies in order to get them to respond. And so you'll hear them saying the things that you can tell that Facebook or Google or Apple or Microsoft really want them to say rather than asking hard questions. And it was really interesting this week to watch the testimony on Capitol Hill because much like much like journalists who are denigrated for not understanding tech, right, not getting it, um, being sort of old-fashioned and luddites, actually the you know our government is often talked about that way too. And I thought that um, that there were some good questions that came, there were some insightful questions that came from members of Congress. Um, and actually, it was the tech companies that seemed to not actually have a clue as to <laughs> the ramifications of the of their of their products and services, which was really interesting to me. Well, they sent along their their lawyers this week, which was really interesting because it, you know, the the answers were unsatisfactory as far as you know why didn't you know about this? 
you know, there's some good questions about the, their their business models, not just taking money directly for the advertising, but you know, the 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 the, the rev share opportunities, the money made alongside the content and and eyeballs and shares and all that this activity that's going on. But then also, it really shows the the bigger picture here because you know while none of the CEOs showed up Mark Zuckerberg is doing an earnings call you know where they're um I forget how they had they had you know what was it 70 percent increase in profitability 79 percent increase in profitability yeah and you know and and so he could be bothered to come this stuff is really hard for them to think about but they're like enjoying 79 percent you know growth and it just really shows what this is all about, you know, and and when when it comes to disrupting and, and, and you know, convincing people that technology is the right way to be doing things, you know, uh, technologists, you know, we can we can solve anything. We can do anything. AI, you know, blockchain, all these things, they can do anything. You can you could fix any problem, whether it's, you know, uh, water in Africa, whether it's, you know, uh, hurricane victims in Puerto Rico, the energy grid, all of this stuff can be fixed and, and quote unquote disrupted um, if, if need be. But when it actually comes, you know, to the, uh, these hard questions, it's like, I don't know, man, you know, this stuff's hard. This is big. You know, we can't see everything that's going on. We can't understand everything that's going on. But at alt school, if you just have all the data, we know everything that's going to happen with these kids. And then what really bothers me even more is, is even with like the alt schools closing, these hard questions, what's happened right, happening right now around the election, you can, I can open up my feed here and look at the regular press release regurgitation talking about the next thing that technology is going to change or, or, or fix. And people are still buying into this stuff hook, line, and sinker. People are not pausing at all, not even for a moment to reconsider. Yeah, I think that the, I mean, there were several things with the tech companies' revelations that I find, you know, that you can, that are, are troubling. I mean, on one hand, you know, the, the stance that Facebook took right after the election saying, you know, how on earth could, um, could people have been influenced by the Russians on our platform? That just seems ludicrous, to then, as more information came out, maybe there was some Russian ad buy, but they only spent a thousand dollars. And really, what can you do with a thousand dollars? To then, you know, as releasing the data before their testimony this week, um, 126 million people saw messages that were part of this sort of misinformation, disinformation, sort of inflammatory messaging that the Russian advertising, not, and we're just talking about advertising, undertook, right, on Facebook. Um, and that's just on Facebook. That doesn't include Twitter, um, and that doesn't include YouTube. And so I think that the reach of these companies um, with the advertising alone, and that's what they are. They are advertising companies, right? Google is an advertising company. Facebook is an advertising company. Twitter is an advertising company. They've built these other services around that. Um, but really, at the end of the day, until they change their, until they change their business model, that's what they're. That's what they are. 
Um, and all of this, um, you know, the spread of just the advertising alone, and then the amplification on top of that of, of the bots, the fake accounts and the bots is, is phenomenal. And what, to me, the fact that sort of that these, that these companies can say, oh, we had no idea is, is shocking because somehow I think the rest of us did. There was a story also in Bloomberg um, right, so like the the tech, the, the story was not in TechCrunch. It was in Bloomberg. The business business reporters do the good reporting about tech, right? Political reporters do the good report. Culture reporters, not the tech reporters. There was a story in Bloomberg, um, an interview with I can't think of the guy's name, the African American engineer. He wrote a piece on Medium. A year ago about the problems with the diversity um, at at Twitter and the decisions that Twitter was making that would sort of de facto keep the company white, right? Um, but he said that he'd noticed, um, he left the company a couple of years ago, so this is pre-election, but he had noticed a number of Russian um, bots and uh, accounts that were Russian created and or created with uh, Ukrainian IP addresses that seemed to be part of these sort of ro- pro-Russian propaganda um, efforts. He'd noticed them, notified the company, and the company sort of poo-pooed it. Right? So no, no one has really taken this stuff seriously. And this is, this is not new. It's not like Donald Trump ran for president and then suddenly the Russians invented propaganda. Um, this is this is long term and ongoing, and you can still sort of you can still see this in play today, but um, but these com- these companies seem to be uh, grossly unaware of what's happening, and then I think they're so busy giving this PR to the tech press to write these stories about disruption and revolution that they really are like they sort of the smelling salts have sort of got to them and they they really believe that narrative it's it's sort of they are sort of um blind to their own hype machine and can't actually get outside get outside their own messaging I, I mean, I've written about this several times, the, these these bubbles, you know, coming out of this election, there's a lot of talk about bubbles. And, you know, it's really in the context of conservative or liberal. Um, but I think there's many, many other forms of bubbles that, um, you know, that, that we choose to live in. And some are, some are for the better, some are for the worse. But so a lot of people I've talked to who are, who are really close or to people at Facebook and Twitter, they talk about, you know, this bubble that they live in and they really believe, you know, the, what they've been spouting. They believe that they're making the world a better place. They believe that their platform is, is a platform for change and democracy and, and all this. And, and they don't have people questioning it. That's why these companies don't have, you know, uh, a diverse range of voices around them is because they don't want to hear it. They shut that down, um, you know, whether actively or kind of, you know, um, just in, in, in subconsciously in the hiring processes and whatnot. But they don't want people asking the hard questions about what's going on. And they're going to make sure and push those away, and whether it's, it's at the company or HR level or whether it's at the investor level, you know, how and who they listen to and who they hang out with. I mean, 
when you're taking as much money as as these companies have, you you are going to listen more to your investors. You're going to listen to more from the top down than you're going to ever listen from the bottom up, let alone listen to your, your actual users or platforms. And if you're looking for trends, you're not looking for the trends that, that are going to uncover this. So you're I, I don't doubt that some of these people are probably caught off guard by by some of this of what's going on, but I have to think that there's there 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 have their finger on some analytics that showed some of this, but they genuinely didn't see it as a problem. They just see uh, you know Russia uh, as another investor, Russia as another ad partner, Russia as another you know they don't. They don't see this as a problem when you when they they're looking at through the lens of their you know their their advertising and this rhetoric that they put out about their platform. They don't see it as a problem. They're not they're not questioning it. Well, this is part of the Paradise Papers that just came out today that um, underscored the relationship between Yuri Milner, who's a very well known um, venture capitalist, um, and his um, firm DST and the Kremlin. And the suggestion, according to the Paradise Papers, is that DST was, I don't know if front's quite the right word, but that one of the investors in DST's funds were these Kremlin, um, uh, were were sort of Kremlin-backed companies. And so you could see that um, DST was an investor both in Facebook and in Twitter. And so, as you say, and, and Mark Zuckerberg, when he reached out to ask Yuri Milner to invest in him sort of wanted to have wanted to have that gesture towards Russia because this is part of this idea of international markets and globalization and scale right you you don't want to simply be a social network um, for and of and invested in by the US you want the sort of global reach with with global um with global investors so i mean i think that it is you know it is very much a reflection of the way in which the 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 need to scale globally um has has put has put companies um has made companies make relationships perhaps with um with investors that on second thought seem to perhaps um or or investors that would whose who, countries whose missions would run counter the kind to the kinds of things that silicon valley likes to tout like you know free speech democracy and so on but i want to just come back to what you were saying a minute ago about the people at the companies not knowing um i think that people some people at the companies know but there's this other sort of structural practice that happens and that's the nda and that was one of the interesting little footnotes in that Bloomberg story about, um, oh, I just forgot his name again. I, I had it on the tip of my tongue. Leslie Miley, the Twitter, the African-American Twitter engineer, was that he refused the severance package when he was laid off from Twitter, um, refused the severance package because the severance package came with an NDA and he wanted to be able to talk about his experiences at the company. Now, at the time, what he thought he'd be talking about was the way in which the company um, sort of grossly failed at any sort of diversity issue or an initiative. But, you know, now he's actually able to talk about how the company also failed in um, addressing this problem on its platform of of the Russian of Russian bots. 
And so I think that the NDA and, you know, journalists, tech journalists are asked to sign and to sign NDAs. And as a journalist, you should not be signing an NDA, right? An NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, runs absolutely counter to the kind of work that you one should be doing as a journalism, which is, you know, disclosure, transparency, uncovering, revealing, telling. Um, and so the, um, uh, but because the oftentimes a Google, you know, Google, Google will often ask for NDAs. Um, Apple will ask for NDAs. They'll brief you with a story or they'll brief you with a, a news item and give you a, 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 dead, a date when you're allowed to talk about it. Um, and so there are lots of practices that, that, that these tech companies use with journalists, but there are lots of practices that these companies use internally to stop people from talking. And I think that, again, there's all of, you know, these, these practices of silencing are, are bad enough as it is, is, is within business. But if, if the, if the sort of outside entity that's supposed to keep you on track, journalism, is actually paid for by your company, invested in by your company, shares investors with your company, is beholden to you, wouldn't get its stories unless you gave it stories, then it really sort of undermines the function of the function of um, of journalism, which is to sort of be able to uncover and expose and help the public understand what what these companies are up to. And I think that the the technology journalists, by and large, have been so busy, busy trumpeting this sort of techno-utopian future that they were, they too were really not paying attention to the subterfuge and the undermining of of our democratic principles that we see, um, that we see occurring through social media. But I would say that we see occurring through quite a few of the notions of ed tech. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I, I'm seeing this across several industries, you know, that uh, being impacted by technology and they're looking to get their, their, you know, get into those industries and the industries that are, that they can disrupt. And, and, and a big part of disruption is, is capture some of the, the, the cash flow that's in there and education I know has an enormous spend and, and and if they can just crack in and and get in to some of that money, you know they're gonna they're gonna say whatever it takes, and they're gonna try. You know, I mean, the number of people bombarding me to try to get into different aspects of government, to get into dis- different aspects of education, healthcare, inboxes full of stories telling me what I should say. Uh, hey, did, here's one right here. You know, hey, did you see these two stories from this week? I got. Two on healthcare, one on security, just in, in, in the top level of my inbox. And then I've also got that, as you said, people sending me NDAs. And these are a lot of these NDAs people ask me. And I have a, I have a regular post that I link to saying, no, I don't sign NDAs. But the reasons people give for, some, for forcing you to sign NDAs 
are many. And, and I say, hey, I'm, I'm all about free ideas. I'm not going to lock up my ideas by having a conversation with you. But a lot of people come back and say, oh, this is because of, of, of regulatory. You know, we're, we're in healthcare, we're in financial. Before we can tell, show you anything we're working on, we have to have you sign an NDA. This is because of intellectual property. You know, we have this, this machine learning AI magic voodoo that, you know, before you can look at it, you got to sign this. And these are just one of many ways that they get their hooks in you and get you thinking like them, speaking like them, uh, locked up and not able to talk about them so you can only say what you're told. But then the money comes into it, the number of people who want to give give me money for different reasons um, just to slow change or shift, shift my course on what I'm working on. And then the other half of that is the people who you know, promise me money with no strings attached and just, hey, hey, what you're doing, focus on it. But then... Uh, uh, don't pay or put me into a, a net 30, 60, 90 net never payment cycle where they're not actually going to pay me. But that actually just gummed up the wheels in my independent freelancer world. Be, you know, and, and I'm not saying these people are consciously like trying to knock us off balance or keep us from, from saying things, but this is just how the corporate machine works. And this is how the, the startup and then now the slash startup slash enterprise machine, now that the enterprise has kind of set its sights and become so dependent on this kind of tech startup culture, this is how they operate. Well, I mean, and I think that that's one of the things that we learned, you know, from, you know, Joe, Rickert, Joe Ricketts' um, moves that he took against the Gothamist um, this week is that, you know, to be an, to be a, to be a indie journalist really is getting increasingly difficult. And that's by design, right? That that, you know, the, that this is this, <laughs> because there is something really powerful about an independent media, um, and keeping, uh, keeping a fully functioning democratic society that a lot of folks don't, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't particularly hip to at this, at this moment. Um, we've hit our 30 minutes plus plus, but before we wrap up, I do want to give one final shout out to the contract worker, not even actually a full-time Twitter employee who demonstrated really how solid the security is on that website this week by deleting the president of the United States Twitter account. Yeah, that was, uh, I think it was only for about 10 or 11 minutes, but uh, we got a little bit of peace this week. Thank you. Good to know. Good to know, though, that the folks at these companies keep that in mind. The folks at these companies, and not just the executives, not just the engineers, not just the high-profile people who get their names in the press, but the customer service contract workers have access to your account and can look at it, delete it, disable it whenever they want at Twitter. Well, as Mark Zuckerberg said this week, you know, if... if if they invest fully in security, they won't be profitable. So, well, Twitter Twitter could invest fully in everything and it still wouldn't be profitable. But that's <laughs> another story. They can invest in nothing and still not be profitable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jack. Well, better luck. Better luck next startup, Jack. Third time's Alrighty, the charm. Well, until next week. Until next time. I'm saying next week. We're doing it. Next well, week. I'm saying next time. So we'll see. All right.